Hello, welcome to another episode of the Let People Prosper Show. My name is Dr. Vance Ginn, and I appreciate you joining us today. Look, the Let People Prosper Show is all about facing the pressing problems of today and finding ways, the best ways, to let people prosper. I'm delighted to have my friend and, um, and a person who does a lot of great work, Chuck Beecham. Chuck, welcome to Let People Prosper Show. Thanks for having me, Vance. All right, let me give you a quick overview of Chuck. Um, he's, a, he's a great guy. He's a happy warrior overall. Uh, but I want to give you a quick bio of, of him. Um, and I, I want to know today is September 12th, 2022. That's the day we'll be recording this. Um, so we'll be mentioning maybe some economic data just to let you know when that will be. Um, but here's Chuck Beecham. He is Assistant Professor of Finance in the School of Business at Mississippi College. Dr. Beecham joined MC's faculty in 2016 and currently teaches business finance, financial modeling, and short-term financial management. His area of expertise is corporate and economic life cycles. Dr. Beecham earned his PhD in finance at Mississippi State University and attends St. Francis Assisi, uh, of Assisi Catholic Church in Madison. Chuck, it's great to have you on the show, um, and I'm, I'm just pleased to be here with you. We've, we've been able to work together on some things, and I've had you on the show previously, uh, but I thought, you know what, let's, let's do this again. Uh, there's a lot of good data that's going on. Well, I won't say all good data, but there's a lot of data that's out there, and I know that you're always parsing through it and, and finding ways to do that. So I want to get into that soon. But before we get there, uh, I really want to start with why you do what you do. Um, Chuck, explain to the audience kind of a little bit about your background and why you do what you do. Okay. So when I came out of undergraduate, I went into the corporate world and the grocery industry. I really liked it. Um, I learned very quickly that there was there was more to finance and economics than I knew. I wanted to further my education. So I went back into um, into uh, into the education world, worked on my master's and then ended up staying for a Ph.D. I just liked it. I liked the research aspect of it. Um, and I also like teaching. Um, so here I am 20 years later. Uh, still teaching, still doing research. And I like to just, I like to share knowledge really two different ways. Um, share, share factual knowledge through, uh, research and trying to grow that body, that body of knowledge, both for academics, but more, I enjoy doing it more for the private sector or for, for, um, for non-academics. And then I enjoy, I enjoy the teaching side of things as well. Not so much, you know, the college professors these days are getting a, a you know, a pretty tough, I don't know, pretty, pretty hard look at them right now are pretty they're they're they are i don't know um they are criticized a lot for telling students what to think i like to think that i don't do that i like to try to teach my students using my knowledge how one to identify problems or identify strengths and solving those problems or growing on those strengths, both in the corporate world, the economic world and so forth so that's what really drives me and i think the more that we highlight highlight our general ideas, the ideas that you and I share to the to the to the broader world, you know, we're hopefully going to at one at some point leave a better world for our kids. You know, what even if we only contribute just a small part to it, that's where I'm hoping to go with it. Well, amen, uh, Chuck. And I, I know your your faith kind of drives you. You can you can hear it in the way you're saying some of that now. Um, and so that's also something that kind of keeps me going and has some good conversations every once in a while. So I really appreciate all the work that you do. Um, what about some of your research, you know, more of your academic research? What is that? What do you really drill in there? 
Well, on the academic side, you know, I've kind of evolved, you know, when you've been doing it for a while, you, some people evolve and change. Some people, you know, really, if you look at the, at the real heavyweights in academia, they generally choose one path and they stay on it the entire mm-hmm. time and they grow that path and grow that path. Um, I'm, I haven't done that. I started, I, I, I came out looking at private equity. That was what my dissertation was on. And it was very hot you know, in the, uh, in the first mm. decade of this century. And that's, that's what I did. And then I kind of evolved into working capital management, which is looking at short-term financial needs and uses of companies. I really enjoy that area. I still do that area, but recently I've been looking at more of a demographic focus of businesses. Where are we in life cycles? You know, where business ec- economies go through life cycles, so do products and so do businesses. And I'm really interested right now in, where are the businesses in the United States with respect to their life cycle? Hmm. And, you know, because each life cycle contributes to the economy in different ways. The early life cycles contribute to growth. The, the latter life cycles contribute to cash flow within the economy. And the, the final life cycle, of course, we know where that goes for, for, yeah. for not just <laughs> us, but for businesses. And, you know, so that I think that's an important area that's been neglected now. It was really hot in the 80s, early 90s. And then it kind of it kind of just got pushed to the side. Uh, but I think it's important because I think it relates to the overall macro economy. Um, and as you and I have talked about n- numerous times, we think there's some things missing in some of these macro models. Um, not that they're wrong. There's just some ideas and some concepts that could be missing. And I think this is one of them to, to you know, if you're going to, if the Fed's going to lower interest rates, how is that going to affect the overall, you know, the corporate side of the economy. And I, I think they look at it to a certain extent, but not from uh, uh, not from a, a life cycle standpoint. They look at it just from a broader standpoint. And I think sometimes it would benefit them and other people to look at it from a from a more granular granular level. Well, well that, that makes sense. And whenever you're di- when you're digging in and using those life cycle models, there's always assumptions, right, that go into those yeah. models and how you're going to determine maybe what the net present value is going to be or a number of other factors that are out there. Um, what are some of the key assumptions that you look at, you know, and, and you use when you're, when you're looking at a model? You know, finance, the financial models and the economic models, even though the financial models are products of all the economic models, they do differ a bit in that um, we're looking more at, at firm growth rates or firm cash flows. So those are the things, and, and that's, that really is what gets difficult in finance is determining if I'm looking at this company and I'm trying to model out the value of that company, what's the, what's the appropriate growth rate? And we have nice, we have nice assumptions that go into that. But as you and I have talked about numerous times before, when the Fed started lowering interest rates below, you know, below equilibrium back in 2008 and left it there, for what has turned out to be, we're still below equilibrium, but at least they're going up finally. But mm-hmm. we've been in this now for 14 years. These models start breaking down when you have below market rates of interest, when you have, because that affects your cash flows, that affects your growth, and that affects really everything. So all of these models, even though we have nice, you know, rules and assumptions that go into these models, they've been really hard to apply over the last 14 years because the Fed has distorted everything. So when I use these assumptions, I'm today, I'm using it with the, with the understanding that these assumptions are what we've always used 
but they might not be as accurate because the Fed has distorted literally everything. Well, that, that's so true. Um, and there's so much to dive into there. You know, one of the things that I pick up on, on, on the assumptions, I think that's what a finance, economics, one of the things that we really look at and are kind of trained to look at mostly are those assumptions going into the model. Could be Because we see a lot of models right now that are indicating that inflation was transitory, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, or, or, or that, you know, government spending is what can help fill the, the gaps, these economic gaps and boost economic growth for a while and things of that nature. This Keynesian sort of model, mm -hmm. we have the modern monetary theory sort of models and, and what the assumptions are going into that, which I think is more of an ideology than some sort of economic philosophy because, because of the identities that they look at. But, I would agree. But there's always some, yeah, there's, there's always something that goes in there. And sometimes I hear economists, I don't know if you hear about this as much in finance, but they'll say, look, we're going to let the data speak for us. I don't. I find that that's that's kind of an odd statement because no matter what data you put in, if you put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out, right? And, well, and there's going to be some assumptions based on those worldviews of how those data are going to be put into the model, and then what the results are that we're going to try to interpret. Do you find that also in finance? Yeah, not as much because okay. many or most of the models that we use in finance are managing billion-dollar funds. So mm -hmm. they can't afford to be wrong that often. You know, if you if you look at the talking heads on TV um, from an economic standpoint, if you were to track those their statements over a four to six week or a four to six month period, it would be amazing how how often they're wrong. You know, if you did that in if you did that in finance, you would be broke very quickly. So the yeah. models have to be much tighter than we, you know, we have a lot more leeway um, in the economics models because, and the other thing, the finance models happen quicker. The action in finance is literally all day, every day. You know, it's, those financial markets are open at eight, 830 in the morning or central time for me, uh, 930 on the East coast, whatever, but they're open and then they close uh, seven hours later. So for that seven hour window, you've got to be right, you know, and really it's, it carries on to the next day and next day and so forth. So these financial models are happening, as I said, every day. So they've got to be more accurate. That doesn't mean they're always correct or they're always accurate. They're not. But you don't yeah. see the error as much. I would love to see, and I, I don't, no one's ever done this, but I would love to see a series of Bloomberg interviews. If you went mm -hmm. on the Bloomberg TV or Bloomberg radio and look at the, look at the forecast that those professionals are making and then compare the accuracy there to say the accuracy of political economists on Fox, CNN, MSNBC, and so forth. And I think you would see an error rate on the latter that would just be tremendously different than and, and worse than the finance guys. And I'm not saying that finance yeah. people are better than economists. They're not. It's just the difference in the work. You know, it's yeah. you from a financial standpoint, like I said, if you're if you're incorrect for a long period of time, you're gone. You know, you're out of yep. the business. And that's the biggest that's the biggest difference you see here. Yeah. Well, yeah, th that makes a lot of sense. And but you're right where you have finance. The dollars are on the table. <laughs> yes. The money's on the line. That's right. right. Whereas in economics, I mean, oftentimes they're trying to forecast and say something <laughs> else where 
that, you know, money is not really on the line necessarily. It's their best guess and they're trying to help people out, but it's not the same incentives, right? And incentives right. matter. Um, right. And so they don't have as much, there, there, there's a lot of differences that take place. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think too, right, it, it's tough to beat the market. Whether you're an economist or financial expert or something else, it's very difficult to beat the market. Um, yes. I, I don't know if you do much day trading, uh, Chuck, but no. I don't. <laughs> no, no. I, I don't have the time. I have a personal financial planner who kind of helps with that sort of thing. And I um, mean, that division of labor, specialization, right? Yes. Um, and But it's helpful in that sense. Yes. For the average person, they're not going to beat the market, even if they day no. trade. You know, it, it, you see a lot of people that do day trade. A lot of them get wiped out. There are successful people, though. I don't want to make it sound like it's impossible. If you look at Warren Buffett, and uh, his partner, uh, Charlie Munger, they've been yeah. just exceptionally uh, successful over a 50 plus year span. But, yeah. it, you know, you can parse their data as well and find periods where they underperform the market or fail to beat the market. So for the average person, you're exactly right. They do not need to, you know, they do not need to actively trade. They need to hire professionals. Uh, yeah. But I, I don't want to make it sound like, know that it's impossible to do because we do have money managers that beat the market on a frequent basis. You know, it, it yeah. can be done, but there is that specialization of labor as you speak. And there's yeah. also a cost, uh, you know, there's a, a, a cost barrier to getting in there. The people that do this for a living have tremendous uh, resources at their fingertips that cost a huge amount of money. And that's, yeah. that's important to understand real live data is expensive. And, you know, not only is it expensive, you, as you mentioned, you have to have the time to, to uh, analyze it and massage it and make decisions on it. And you have to be sitting in front of that computer seven hours a day to be able to do that. And it's just hard for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and while we're on this issue, and I do want to get into the economic indicators that's going on now, but I think this will be really helpful for a lot of the folks in the audience is one of the good books that I read that really helped me a lot to learn about the markets was um, Burton Malkiel's uh, A Random Walk Down Wall Street. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. All right. But but basically, you, you correct me where I'm wrong here, Chubb, but, you know, a lot of times you want to get in index funds. You want to have a broad-based portfolio to a certain extent, but maybe there's some nuances that, that you could share with us. There's a lot of nuances there. You know, they have the life cycle funds now, and that's not anything related to what I was talking about earlier with firm, okay. and, firm and economic life cycles. But they have funds now that are designed for a 25-year-old 20, a that's just getting started that decides they want to retire at age 65 or age 70. Well, they have funds now that are designed to optimize returns up through that 30 or 35 year period. That's why I think you hit the nail on the head on investing. Get a financial advisor, get a financial planner, lay out you and your family's goals and stick with the plan. And they're going to, they're going to land you in, you know, in the right spot when you're 65, 70 years old, you know, and it gets into co into college planning for people's children and that type of thing. The other part of it is there are certain funds that people like to be invested in. And now you have people that no longer want to be invested in the so-called um, sin stocks that's getting into mm. anything dealing with tobacco or alcohol or uh. gambling. You have also people that don't want to get into anything that's not climate friendly. So if you're getting that picky, you again need to have a financial advisor that can identify those funds that you need to be in yeah. and, and, and need to be able to understand, look, if I go into a specialized fund, I may beat the market 
tremendously, or I might undervalue the market, you know, underperform the market tremendously as well. And you need someone to explain that type of stuff to you instead of just saying, hey, I heard about this fund on Twitter. Let me invest in this fund. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's probably the worst. That's probably the worst financing strategy or investing strategy out there. Yeah. Well, no, Chuck, that, that makes a lot of sense. And thank you for that. All right. Let's start getting into some of the other stuff now. Uh, I, I know you, Chuck, and I know we've done this you know, before. One of the great things that I like about it is, um, is is they usually have a lot of data that's on your mind or things you've been looking at recently. I'd love for you maybe just to kind of just, just let it go, you know, kind of okay. just let it flow for a little bit. What you've been thinking, what you've been seeing and, and take however long you want. But I, I really love to hear your thoughts about what you're what you've been uh, reading and listening to here recently. I think, you know, whenever we talk about if you if just a little side, just a little sidestep for a second. Whenever you talk about yeah. real estate, it's always location, location, location. Well, I think we have, th I think we have two areas right now that's driving everything, and that's hmm. Europe, 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 and energy, energy, energy. I think yeah. that's the name of the game across the entire economy right now, and I think a lot of people are missing it. You still have people that are looking at the supply chain issues. Yes, there are still issues there, but they're starting to really, you know, they're they're starting to get relief across those supply chains. But even if you get relief across the supply chains and start releasing some of that product, you're still having to pay astronomical shipping rates to get it across country, to get it from the port of Los Angeles or get it from the port of New York or whatever, in that these diesel, these diesel trucks, railroad, all of that's costing a fortune to move, even though oil prices have come down, they're still a dollar more than they were per, you know, gas prices and diesel prices are still a dollar more than they were when Biden took office. The barrel of oil looks like it's sitting at around 94. I think, and I might be wrong about this, I always say that when I make a prediction, but I think we've hit the bottom. You know, mm. I think 90 to 95, we're going to trade in that range per barrel. And then I think once the winter gets here and, a, and a, the energy crunch is even harder across Europe, I think you're going to see prices go right back up above $100 a barrel again. Yet last week, the, the Biden administration announced that they would do whatever necessary to make sure Europe had enough natural gas going through the winter. Well, they only have one card to play, and that's to ship liquefied natural gas to Europe from the United States. Well, we only have a certain amount right now. We can't just create a new a new sector of supply of natural gas. So that's going to drive prices here higher over the winter months. So I think we're in for a long winter. I think Europe's in for an excruciating winter. We are already seeing it play out in Germany. You know, last week, the Gorgi shoe company in Germany that had been in business since I believe it was 1875 is insolvent. And they're insolvent simply because of energy cost and the cost of production. Hmm. You know, that was and it wasn't just your little shoe store around the corner. They operated 160 stores in 90 cities. So wow. now you've got a major company already going going down an old major company going down in Europe or in Germany, which is the economic bellwether for the European Union. They're going down now in September and they haven't even hit winter yet. What's mm -hmm. going to happen when when their utility bills are $2,000 a month, you know, yeah. the equivalent of $2,000 a month. 
what are those businesses going to do? I don't know if you've seen it on Twitter lately, but they've had they had a little tea room in somewhere in England. I don't remember a little village in England. And the lady ran just this this little tea cafe. Her utility bill for the month of August was over 2000 pounds. There's absolutely no way for her to survive, that business to survive on that. People, you know, you had people commenting, well, then she must not have a good business. No one has a good business at those type of rates. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing that all across Europe. And I think it's going to get worse. The other thing I've been noticing recently, and there's no data on this yet, but is the unemployment. Yeah, the numbers still look good in the reports coming out of BLS, but you're starting to see Goldman Sachs announced today that as early as, ne as early as next week, they're going to lay off several thousand employees. That's significant. When you start seeing the financial sector lay off employees, that means that the economy is slowing tremendously, okay? Because you have to remember, and everyone has to remember, what's the if you think about flow, anything flowing through pipes or anything, there has to be a pump. The financial industry is the pump. That's what keeps cash moving and liquidity moving through the system. There's a lack of deals on Wall Street, Street right now, and they're starting to see that across the banks. I talked to a, uh, I talked to a bank president, of, or excuse me, bank vice president last week, and he was telling me that the that the loan applications in the corporate arena are way, way down, lower than they've seen in over a decade. So companies are no longer borrowing. When companies are no longer borrowing, they're not growing. Mm -hmm. And when they're not growing, they're not adding new new employees. They're not adding new products. So we've got a real issue here. The other thing that I, that, that I noticed, and this is, this is to me a, a data point a lot of people have missed, credit card usage has increased eightfold over the year. So people are financing inflation with personal credit, but at some point they're going to run out of personal credit and then they have to really start making decisions. Even if inflation backs off tomorrow on CPI, I think the consensus is eight tomorrow. Even if it, even if they hit the consensus and it drops down to eight, we're still at 8% and wage growth in August was only five and a half percent. So we're still, people are still losing 3% there on an annual basis. So you've got, you still have people falling behind. They're still going to have to finance purchases on those credit cards. When that runs out, then tough decisions have to be made. Even if the CPI went to zero tomorrow, zero percent growth tomorrow, you still have all the inflation we've experienced at a and their wages are below it. It's still not going to go away overnight. And I think that's what a lot of people are missing here. The other thing I saw yeah. to suggest that inflation is probably coming down a little bit. The used car market had decreased last month. Um, you know, the price, the prices actually decreased some came yeah. off about four and 4.8%, I think. So we are starting to see softness in durable goods and autos. The housing market has plummeted. Mm -hmm. I mean, the housing market is, yeah. has plummeted. So we're seeing that softness that you would expect during interest rate hikes. But where, where are we going to be six months from now? I think the yeah. Fed continues to increase rates until something bad happens, then they'll panic and pull it back. But mm -hmm. as you know, and I know, and everyone else with any, you know, with financial and economic knowledge knows, it takes months for these rate changes to filter through the system. Even if they, if something bad happens around late winter, say January or February, it would take through the end of next summer for any rate cuts to really arrest the fall. 
So I think we have a tough winter ahead of us, and I think we have a very long year ahead of us. I don't know if it's going to be as tough as the year, but I think we're going to have a difficult year economically from this point through this point next year. Yeah. Uh, well, well, thank you for all that optimism, Chuck. <laughs> well, you know, you got to call it like you see it. We're happy uh, no, warriors, I, but sometimes it has to be sad. Well, yeah, you know, I, and, and, and look, you know me too. I'm a happy warrior, and it's a tough time. I mean, this is it is. economics. Economics is known as kind of the dismal science, and yes. usually I'm an optimistic economist, which is kind of an oxymoron that usually don't go together. But you, but like you said, you've got to call like it is. You've got to be real. Too often, people will try to try to sugarcoat these things. And um, you know, to be honest, right now you see a lot of the folks from the left are trying to sugarcoat it. They'll say, "Well, some of this is still transitory. We had zero percent inflation during July," and they try to sugarcoat some of this yeah. stuff. But but you know, some on the right will do that whenever they're in charge. You, you, can, you oh, do course. get it from both sides. But at the same time, we do need to call balls and strikes where we can. And yeah. I think right now it's pretty tough. Like, look, you and I talked about this. I mean, I, I think we're in a recession. Maybe the deep, maybe it's going to get deeper into recession going into next year. Maybe this is a double dip recession. But you had two consecutive quarters of declining real economic output, which since 1950, every time that has happened, it's been called a recession. Yes. And the National Bureau of Economic Research, they don't date a recession until usually about a, a year after the recession has happened. So we may not actually have a date for this one way or the other until next year. Just like last year, uh, well, in 2020, they dated, they didn't date that recession, which happened from, what was it, February to April, a two-month right. really decline, until July of 2021. More than right. a year later, even though I think all of us could have said we were in a recession. <laughs> yes, and it's something yes. that I think we've got to t- take into account because it's not just the declining real economic output. It was a lot of stuff that you mentioned there, Chuck, about the labor market showing some weakness. Yes, the headline numbers look strong, a 3.7% unemployment rate. You know, um, the labor force participation is coming back. However, it's still down. It's still down compared to where it was in February of 2020. Um, and if you consider how many people have dropped out of the labor force, not just those that have retired, okay, because some of that was going to happen anyway. If yes. many people did take early retirement, maybe they were forced. Maybe it was an incentivized because of the situation that we were in, the shutdowns and everything else. But there's still like 3 million people that are sitting on the sidelines, which if you added them back in to the way that the the unemployment rates calculated, unemployed divided by the labor force, you would have a much higher unemployment rate. And and so there's a lot of these things I think we see on the surface where we really got to get down and and dig in like what you were saying there. You know, one thing on the labor market, and this has been so infuriating ever since COVID, you know, we basically shut the economy down for, in some states, a two-year period. I mean, it was, it just depends on the state. In Mississippi, where I am, Texas, where you, where you are, we, you know, we rebounded pretty quick and opened the economies as quickly, too late, but still as quickly as everyone else. That, that, that believe, look, we've got to keep going. We can't just shut down. But if you go into these blue states, they were shut down until last year. So this idea that's been, and I don't blame the Biden White House. I mean, their, their job is to get, you know, is to keep everyone happy and get reelected. That's what they're focused on. But this 
hey, we've created this many jobs. We haven't really created any new jobs. These are all jobs that were just recovered from the, the rapid shutdown because those jobs were not lost in a normal fashion. If you look at an economy that generally goes into a, a natural recession, you know, jobs, job losses begin and then they accelerate and then they, you know, they hit a peak and then they start coming back down as the economy recovers. Those job losses happened immediately. As soon as these governors started signing these executive orders to shut these economies down, those job losses hit immediately. That's not natural job loss. That's that's unnatural job loss. Yeah. So all of these jobs that have been coming back online, those were not created. Those were just restarted so to speak. So to even it, compare it, the labor market today to what it was in 19 is just, in my opinion, ridiculous. It's yep. not, you know, it's not really, it's, I don't see it as being healthy uh, for, a num for a number of reasons. Like you said, if you look at the jobs that have come back, a lot of them are in lower skilled, you know, lower skilled job areas. And the other part of it is this quiet quitting that we're hearing yep. so much about. And that, and the labor numbers don't capture any of that. So we've got a productivity problem across the economy that I don't think anybody really knows how to deal with it or even knows the extent of it yet. To me, that's the big question with our current labor situation is what's the productivity? And if you start taking people like at Goldman Sachs, they're going to lay a couple of thousand people off. Well, that means by next week, a couple of thousand people are going to be looking for jobs. They're going to be productive. So you could start seeing these quiet quitters start losing their jobs as bosses say, hey, I've got a go-getter coming out of Goldman Sachs or coming out of whatever company they're getting laid off from. I'm going to replace this person that's not doing his or her job with someone that's going to generate better productivity. So you've got this huge issue of this quiet quitting of these people sitting around, I don't know if they're doing nothing or doing close to nothing, but at some point it's going to start hitting them. And yep. I think you could really start seeing layoffs accelerate. Some people step into those positions. But if you have five people that are quiet quitting and being unproductive, you might could replace those with one that's productive. And yeah. then you've got a, a, you've got a net negative of four there. That's just an example, but that could happen. So yeah. you've got real issues still related to COVID that none of us understand. The models aren't going to pick it up because they're not designed for anything like that, that are going to carry into these winter months at the same time that these credit cards are going to start maxing out, that, yeah. you know, people are getting laid off, that, you know, you've got a lot of you've got a lot of negative points that could come together over the winter and yeah. really slam us hard. As you were as you were talking, uh, Chuck, I was I was thinking about you know they they're calling this the Great Resignation. Yeah, people are resigning and, and and switching jobs and everything else. And part of that is because inflation is so high, they've got to right. cut jobs in, in order to pay the bills. Yes, um, but but I but I almost wonder if it's more of a a great reshuffling. You know, and, and sometimes shuffling can be good because you can get a higher paying job. You can be more productive and better match the place where you need to be um, and your desires. But when it's forced like it was, yes. this reshuffling, uh, I almost think of it as a deck of cards. You're shuffling these and you're they were all together and they're matching up where they need to be in the labor market. But now you've reshuffled them because a lot of the businesses that they were working before, 
failed. You know, yeah. these aren't the same businesses that are out there. I mean, that's yes, exactly right. A lot of them were propped up for a while from maybe the Paycheck Protection Program, the PPP of the CARES Act. And, you know, there's some debate about whether that was good or bad. I think on on net, it was probably a, a good thing. And just in the sense that government forced these businesses to close. They forced yeah. them. So if, if government's going to force them to close, then there's probably um, uh, uh, there, there's a value that's there that mm-hmm. we should help them to stay open so that, that the employees can get paid and pay their bills and everything else. Now, there's been fraud and stuff like that. Like that was probably going to happen because it was such a large government program. Of yeah, what and was it was there. done so quickly. Exactly, exactly. But there were some incentives there to, to do so at the time. But 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 a lot of them still didn't take the PPP loans. Maybe they failed thereafter. And so this has been a huge reshuffling. And there's a lot of talk about corporate greed and everything else. And, you know, these are the sort of situations where it's a government failure. It's it's not a market failure, but a government failure has yes. created a situation where um, firms that were marginal on the sidelines they were they were killed. I mean, they were pushed off the side entirely, and you're left with a fewer number of firms that had to be the lucky winners to take the PPP loans, to have low interest rates. And you and I wrote a piece on the zombie economy, right? You remember that one yes. where you yeah. have these zombie firms that are running off of debt and interest rates were so low, which I want to get to the interest rate thing here in a minute. But you also had the zombie workers that you were just getting at, of those who were sitting on the sidelines, whether whether they were quiet quitting um, or whether they were just on the couch not doing anything right now because they were living off of savings. I mean, in mm-hmm. April 2020, when all the checks were sent out, uh, the savings rate went up to 33 percent, 33 percent, the highest on record. And now it's back down to about 5 percent as people are running through all that savings. And now the question is, are they going to get off the couch and go back to work or are they going to stay on the couch? Yeah. I think a couple of points there. Uh, number one, you were talking about basically the, the government, um, basically the government picked winners and losers during COVID. You know, I mean, they they shut all every business, all these businesses down except the big box stores. I don't, still haven't figured that out. But yeah. they, um, you know, they shut everyone down. All the not all, but a large number of the marginal small businesses, they went away. They they yeah. failed. And, you know, I, I always say this when government picks winners and losers, society is the ultimate loser. You know, Mm -hmm. government needs to stay out of the way and let the market decide what's best for it, you know, but they didn't do that. The second point is that we've got this, the, the tax issues coming in here, the, you, you, you kind of, you hit on it, but not directly. You said talking about the corporate greed. Well, they use the corporate greed to sell tax increases on corporations and on billionaires. What people don't understand if you have a 401k or if you have some type of retirement plan, whatever it is, or just an investment plan, not this in retirement. If you have if you have mutual funds, if you have outright stocks and you're in the middle class or you're in the lower income class, if you own one share of stock, you're you own that company. You're a part owner in that company. And that's ultimately your money. Yeah. So are you you know, if you're in the middle class and you own a share of Apple or you own 10 shares of Apple and Apple's taxes go up. Your taxes are going up. It's not corporate greed's taxes. You know, the greedy corporation's taxes going up. It's your taxes going up. Sure, the the, uh, wealthier shareholders of Apple are going to pay more of it, but you're paying some of it too. So that corporate greed talking point that they parrot out there nearly every day is ridiculous and it's counter it's counterproductive to the lower and middle classes i just it's just ridiculous and, and you know and, and, we, and, 
And, and Chuck, just to, to drill down on that point, uh, workers are just as greedy. I mean, uh, yes, because on, on both sides of the market, corporations are going to maximize profit, which means they want to minimize their cost. And on the other side for workers, they want to maximize their wage. I mean, right. you always want to have the highest wage possible. Why? Because you want to maximize your desires. You want to satisfy those desires. Now, I don't call that greed. Uh, greed is one of the, the seven des deadly sins, okay? Yeah. <laughs> I, I consider that you're just maximizing, you're satisfying your desires, and you're living your life. I mean, right. we, 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 if, if, if a business does not run off of, quote, unquote, greed, where they're maximizing their profits, they're not going to be a business law, right? No. No, that's right. Yeah. And if, if I would make the argument on an individual, if an individual is not run on this, quote, greed, they're not going to make themselves better to earn more wages. Mm -hmm. You know, you keep hearing mm -hmm. this, this, they should pay a living wage. Well, number one, what does that even mean? You know, no one will ever put numbers on any of this stuff. A living, well, I'm sure it polls well, but, yeah. you know, from a, from an economic and financial standpoint, we can't even define it. So what no. is a living wage? Is it, you know, what makes it $15, which seems to be the current number, which tells me that's what's polling well for minimum yeah. wage. But, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. And, you know, it is just it's so counterproductive. And I understand it's politicians for the most part saying this, but you hear economists talking like this. You know, you you hear not just not just the government economists, but you'll hear academics go on Fox or CNBC or, you know, yeah. or MSNBC, CNN, whatever. And they say the same things over and over and over. But, yeah. you know, if what people need to realize is, yeah, everyone's greedy. I think Milton Friedman had the best had the best line about that. No one ever believes that they are greedy themselves. Yeah. You know, they always think the other person's greedy. Well, I mean, when it comes down to it, everyone's looking out for their own self-interest. And yeah. that's what politicians have coined, you know, have termed greed. Well, your, you know, your, your own, your own well-being should be your concern. It shouldn't be the government's yeah. concern. It should be your concern. And you should pursue actions and, and, uh, and ideas that advance your well-being and your family's well-being. Yep. And that has been termed or, turned into being greedy, right? which is just, it's preposterous. I mean, it's just, it's, it's class warfare at the basic level is all yep. it is. And yep. it's, it's effective. I'll give it to them. It's very effective. But when you get down to it, it tears at the five, the economic and financial fibers of the economy after so, you know, it's been going on now for so long. You have two different groups in the country. One group believes that all corporations Big or small, you know, large or small are evil. Everyone wealthy is evil. Then you have another group that believes the exact opposite, that, that a healthy economy is is absolutely necessary for a free and, and prosperous society. And there's just very, very little in between. And this is, if you think about it, this has now been going on since 2007, when the, when the, when the so-called Great Recession began, the, the major shift to a class warfare um, focus for our politicians started. And that's a 14 year, you know, if you think about it, people that are in college right yeah. now, students that I teach right now at 20, 21 years old, they were six then. So all yeah. they've heard of these politicians bad mouthing the, you know, economic units across the economy. It's, yeah. you know, it's really takes its toll after a while. 
So at it, some it, point, we have to have an, a, a real discussion. And this kind of goes back to the beginning of our talk today. Why do I do what I do? Yeah. Well, that for that reason, I want to contribute to a real discussion. Where is the economy? Where is it going? And not this political discussion constantly about rich is bad, uh, everyone else is good. It's ridiculous. And yeah. it's and it's counterproductive to a society. Amen. I, I agree with you, Chuck. And I, I think um, it's important for us to understand that. Look, I mean, yeah, Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, 1776, yeah. talked about people working their own self-interest. Um, I think Russ Roberts over at Econ Talk, he talks about this a lot because it's not just to look at the, the Wealth of Nations. You also should look at the theory of moral sentiments by Adam Smith, where he was he wasn't actually saying that you need to be self-interested it's that you want to be loved you want to you want to be loving right and so it's kind of like the butcher and the baker people forget about what that means is that the butcher's got to make something that the baker wants so that he can get the bread you know yes. he's got and, and so if you're not doing that and looking at what's in the best interest of others at the same time um, kind of that Nash equilibrium if you will then you're not going to be improving your lot in life if you're That's too right. self-interested you actually end up being worse off. That ends up making Correct. you greedy. Whereas this corporate profits um, is, is is improving the business. It's improving the workforce that they have and allowing us to buy more things. One thing that I think we often forget is that the consumer has sovereignty. The consumer yes. could choose to buy something or not to buy something. And we could influence the profitability of each one of these firms every single day. But we, we, we often forget about that side of the market. <laughs> That's exactly right. I think, you know, going to your overall point here. Yeah. I would love uh, to me not, that all of your points there are captured so perfectly in the I pencil essay. Yes. And I would, I would, I, I, anytime anyone asks me, what should I read economics? I only could read one thing yeah. to understand the economy, read I pencil, you know, it's all over the internet in PDF form. You don't have to purchase it. It's no. right there. It takes you 20 minutes to read it. And to me, it captures the very essence of what we're talking about. Yep. You know, I'm going to put that in the show notes. Yeah, here's this simple pencil and not one person knows how to do every, you know, every factor of production in that pencil. No one knows. I, I can't build a pencil. You can't build a pencil. Yeah. And, and neither can the people that cut the trees that build no. a pencil or make the, you know, the resin for the eraser. And so and the and the uh, and the graphite for right, you know, everyone, everyone along that simple little instrument yeah. is taking care of their own self-interest. And the result is this pencil that's so important yeah. to us. You know, yeah. it's just and, and even a, the oil, right? The oil for the paint. Right. All of it. All of it. The oil for the paint, the oil for the chainsaws, yeah. you know, the fuel for the chainsaws to cut the trees. You know, it's just one little thing after another to make this very simple item. It's brought to me. It's the best economic essay ever written. Yeah, I really I really believe I really believe that um, yeah. it's just so perfect. It's simple to understand. But mm -hmm. when you really think about it, it's so powerful. You know, getting back to Milton Friedman, he always asked a question whether he was on, you know, regardless of what show he was on or if he was meeting with college students or whatever. They were, you know, there was always someone that would challenge him yeah. on the idea of self-interest. Yeah. Well, if you're not willing to take care of your own self-interest, who are you going to allow to do that? Who are you going to, you know, 
believe will do the best for you if you're not going to do it for yourself. Is it going to be the government? Really? I mean, <laughs> no one in the government's going to take care of you like you can take care of yourself. So that's, you know, that it gets back to the fundamental principle of self-interest. Everyone yeah. is self-interested. And, yeah. and there are people out there now, unfortunately, that are okay with letting the government take care of their interests. It's not self-interest. But it's their, you know, their interest to a certain extent. Just let the government take care of me. And that's a yeah. that's a bad point to be in um, yep. as an economy and as, an, you know, from an individual. I think people are generally happier when they're pursuing their own self-interest and their own goals. Yep. Nope. Wise words. Um, that's for sure. So we've got a little over five minutes left here, Chuck. And um, kind of staying on that line of thought a little bit, but building on where we're at in the economy so we can give an idea of where we're heading. And you've mentioned this some already, but, you know, politicians are also self-interested. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, they've got to win next re-election. And the James Buchanan, the economist right in the school of public choice school of economics, I think it explains this really well, how they act rationally. It's just that their marginal cost and marginal benefits are different because they've also got to throw in their uh, winning re-election. And so yes. that gets them going in a different direction to where they want to raise the minimum wage to 15 or $25 an hour, even though they know that there's going to be some cost. If they, if they didn't know, or if, if they knew there wasn't going to be a cost, they would raise it to a hundred, a thousand. They know that there's a cost associated with it. Um, but one of the things that we often overlook that ends up being coming too political is when we were going into the shutdown recession is what I'm calling it, but the pandemic and everything else, mm -hmm. I mean, there was the Trump tax cuts. There was the deregulation that took place in the Trump administration. And if you look at the results of what was going on, even in February of 2020, we had a record low unemployment rate. The uh, labor force participation rate was pretty, was high. We had the lowest on record poverty rates in real household medium income. Inflation adjusted, of course, in 2019, we had a lot of these measures and the income inequality was also following because the people at the lower income, their incomes were growing at a faster rate than the upper incomes. And and this is proven that's out there. And, and you know, some will taint the record because it's Trump. Uh, all right. Well, set that to the side. Let's actually look at the policies that were in place. They were pro growth policies. Now, I would like to have seen them cut spending and, and not run massive deficits. I think we would have had more economic growth. I think there needs to be some discussion about what the side effects were of the tariffs, both pro and con. But regardless, the data shows that we were in a very prosperous economy. And the whole episode, you know, this whole show is about let people prosper. I think that's a big part of it. Um, but now what we're seeing is that the poverty rate for kids was reaching, you know, lows, historic lows in 2020 because there was all these handouts. And in 2021, we're um, later this week, we're going to have some new data that's going to come out for poverty for 2021. And my guess is that some of those poverty rates are still going to be pretty low because of all the handouts. But the cost is going to be the massive inflation, the Fed, you know, basically adding five trillion dollars to their their balance sheet, where at some point that money has to make its way through the economy. You know, it's through the stock market. It's through the housing market. It's through this, that, and another market. Then it starts to trickle down. I think that's more of the trickle down economics. It trickles yeah. down into all the other prices that we pay to where the core inflation rate, to your point earlier, is still close to 6%, even if you exclude mm -hmm. the volatile food and energy. And so, look, I, I think... Chuck, we've got to get to a situation where we have more rules-based policies 
both at the Federal Reserve. I mean, look, I would like to end the Fed one day. I just I don't know when that's going to be. And I think maybe we need to have the Overton window keep shifting in that direction. But if, until we get there, we need a rules based monetary policy, more like a Taylor rule, something like that. And then on the fiscal side, though, if we only focus on the monetary side, the fiscal side, if we keep running these types of deficits without a spending limit is really what I would like as a rule. Um, we're going to give the Fed more ammunition and more incentive to just print money because they don't want interest rates to go up. And, and, and so I think that the, hopefully this will really incentivize more rules, more um, um, acknowledgement that we cannot continue down this path or we really will end up like a lot of the countries that have defaulted on their debt and other things, which would be a terrible situation for the great country of America. Um, what, what do you think here in the, the last couple of minutes, few minutes that we have? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we need rules both on the fiscal side and the monetary side. And I think yeah. the two, you know, the two are supposed to work together, not not feed, not feed off of one another. And I think and, and I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it's 20 years ago, you know, or 15 years ago, moving into that 2007 period. It's almost like Congress abdicated its fiscal authorities over to the Fed. Hey, we're just going to spend this money if you'll keep interest rates as low as possible for us. And that's really what they've been doing now for almost 15 years. Mm -hmm. And. You know, look, we're, we're, it's coming home now. You know, we're, we're paying for it now, uh, in, in this, in the inflation numbers that we're seeing, and we're going to continue to, to pay for it. But there's other issues that it's occur, you know, that it's caused in the economy, uh, across, across corporate America. Uh, corporate America quit growing almost organically. You know, you want to see, you want to see Walmart earning new customers bringing new customers in and taking their existing customers and having and 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 earning more revenue from them. But what these big companies were able to do with the Fed's behavior is just buy new customers. And they did that by buying other companies. So it it reduced the competition across corporate America. And you know, so you've got these distortions over and over and over across the economy. So yeah, a rules-based fiscal system and monetary system would stop this. I mean, look, if I had a if I had a magic wand, this yeah. is what I would do on the fiscal side. I would okay. number one, I would push the tax day from April 15th to October 31st so that people going into that voting booth at the first of November every year had just cut that check to the government. That'd mm -hmm. be the first thing I would do. So I would shift the fiscal year to where it was. That's when they were paying just to put the focus on it. I would also reset tax rates to zero every 10 years. And I know a lot of people don't agree with me on that, but it would make Congress look at the economy, which changes. Think about where the economy was 10 years ago and think about where it is now. It's totally different, you know, and it would make the, it would make Congress and the, and the executive branch, the president say, Hey, what's the economy look like now? And what's the optimal tax structure for the next 10 years? You know, because it changes over and over. And I think you and I, I know that would be complicated, but those are the things I would do. Those would be some of the rules. And then, you know, you talk about rules. Should the tax rate be equal to uh, e equal to some percentage rate that would that would that would equate to these taxes collected equal to spending for next year? You know, I mean, that would be the that would be the the ultimate on the fiscal side and then on the monetary side have rules where they can lower and increase rates, but there have to be triggers to allow that to happen. And that there, there would be rules that box them in to certain increases and decreases, meaning 
25, 50 basis points, whatever, not these ridiculous, hey, let's just keep dropping, keep dropping, keep dropping. And then we just sit here for 14 years at almost 0% interest rates. Think about, you know, just for people watching this, think about what that's done to the retirement community over the last 14 mm -hmm. years. Now, unfortunately, some of those people have died, you know, and passed their wealth on to their kids if there was any left. But People had to dip into the principle of their retirement so much over the last 14 years instead of living off the earnings off of that retirement. That's mm -hmm. not how retirement has been structured. So that changes. And when these people, you know, you've got the baby boomers now and the baby boomers are notorious for never, you know, never giving up or never allowing other people to do anything. You're seeing more and more of them work later and later. Well, part of it is because of what I just said. It's a cultural thing in the baby boomers, but a lot of them can't afford it. And they mm -hmm. can't afford it because the rates of return on their investments are so low because of Fed action. So there has to be some kind of balance in the overall rules of the monetary system to, to level this out. And, and I don't like using the term level the playing field because that's ridiculous. Again, that's picking winners and losers, but everyone should be subject to market rates. That's the key. You want to have a level playing field, allow the market to set the rates. Yeah. And then you would have retirees benefiting just like everyone else is benefiting. But when you abnormally take rates to almost zero, you're hurting one, one segment of the economy being the retirees at the expense of other sec you know, sections of the economy which would be the younger people and corporations. We did the same thing during COVID. You know, we basically shut down the economy to protect the elderly. Never before has this country ever put our children behind, who are our future behind the elderly. And that's exactly what we did during COVID. And I don't want to sound heartless on that. I'm not, but that's what we did. And that's what we've done from the economic standpoint, by holding these rates lower, we've had retirees that had to give up their golden years from an economic standpoint because they weren't earning what they normally would. And that wasn't by a mistake they made. It was by a decision that the Federal Reserve made. Basically, again, picking winners and losers, which the yeah. government shouldn't do. And even though the Fed's not technically government, it shouldn't do it either. Right. Well said. Uh, I know we could continue this all day, but let's go ahead and, and end it there. I think we've we've shed light on a lot of the key issues uh, that are going on today and dug in, in some philosophy as well. And um, yeah. hopefully have the, the audience kind of consider the different ways that to let people prosper. I mean, I think it really boils down to free markets, a limited government sort of situation that allows for people to fulfill their own levels of satisfaction. And, and everything else, and with their family and everything else. I think it's so important to remove those barriers where we can. Um, so I, I appreciate you, Chuck Beecham, uh, doing all the work that you do. Let's continue to, to do this. I'd love to have you back on the show again. Sure, I'd love to come back. Okay, good. Um, and so let's find more ways to let people prosper. Thank you all for joining us, and we'll be on on the next show. All right, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.